right. Well, let me just say it is absolutely fantastic to be with you all at the Deepen Conference, and I want to thank Pastor Hayden for the invite, the opportunity to be able to serve Walk Church in this way. Um, I think it's an absolute honor. I think it's exciting. I think I heard from somebody earlier that this is the first Deepen Conference. Is that correct? All right, this is kind of like the spiritual Mayflower then. You know, we're excited. We're going to be charting some new territories, seeing what God's going to do in this journey in our spiritual lives. I'm excited about what God is doing through Walk Church right here in Las Vegas and around the world. So I have been praying for this evening as well as the message that God would have me to share. And my prayers have been that God would allow me to share a message that moves people towards depth and not discouragement. You'll often notice that those go deeper messages sometimes will go a little bit too far on the side of either causing people to have so much pressure that they lose the joy of their Christian life or maybe raising the bar so high that everybody feels as though victory in Christ is now unobtainable. And I don't want that to be the case. I want it to be tonight that as we get into the word that it would be encouraging, that it would be life-giving, and it would also be challenging. So, when God laid this particular message on my heart, my first thought was, really? Have you all ever had those moments in your prayer life where it seems as though you and God are on two different pages? Like, for example, you're, you're praying for a sweet, affordable car, and God answers with a 1972 Pinto with low mileage. And you're thinking, well, it's affordable. And I think it's a car, but I, I think myself and God are on two different ideas of what sweet is. Well, that's kind of how I felt with this particular message. And that is, from my perspective, I thought I had so many more encouraging, life-giving messages than the, the one that I'm going to be sharing tonight. In fact, this one is far more challenging than what it is going to be maybe life-giving. It's going to cause us to go deeper. It's going to cause us to say, what are we really about? And what are we willing to pay in order to continue to follow Christ on whatever the next step of the journey needs to be? So this evening, I've got some thoughts in my mind. But I want to share with you all kind of how this particular message even came into being. Every Monday for about the last six to seven years, a group of pastors gathers in my office. And we take out the word for the upcoming week. We break it down, and we see what it is that God's going to be doing in his word. And there are those days when you get in there, and all of a sudden the truths begin to come out of the text, and you know it is going to be off the chain on Sunday. And everybody's like high-fiving each other in the meeting. We're like, this is incredible. And then there's those Sundays or those Mondays where you're going through the text, and the truths are really deep, and they're hard. And they're the kind of truths that you know it's true. It's in the Bible, but it's not the kind of truth you necessarily want to share. And that's about the time that those guys turn to me and say, Paul, I'm glad you're going to be preaching that and not me. Well, this is one of those texts. So when I got into this particular text, I'd read it prior to actually going into the meeting. And all I can say is I was confused about the direction this thing needed to go. Uh, there was a couple of things that kind of caused my concern. One is it was like 15 verses, which is really, really long for me. Um, I like to sit in a text. I like to dig out the, the nuggets of truth and just not rush my way through things. Also, there was multiple ways you could break this text down. There were certain truths that had been shared in previous chapters. There were new truths that were being shared directly in this text. 
There were certain parts of it that were absolutely essential for setting up the main point, but they definitely weren't the main point. So when I just started studying, I was just confused. And finally, we kind of narrowed in on what we felt like this is the direction going to be. We pulled out some truths. We prayed over it. They left my office. I thought we were going in one direction. And then the next morning, I get into the study, and within the first hour, God blew up those plans. He said, we're not going that way at all. And in that next probably two hours, I found myself in a place of moving from message prep into prayer, into repentance, and then into deeper reflection. I walked out of that, and I told my wife, I'm going to Mount Charleston for the next two days. And I got up on the mountain, and I just began to pray in solitude. And I said, God, I don't know all the implications of this text, but I know it's more than what I'm prepared to share on this upcoming Sunday. And we sat with the text, and what happened during that time is that God moved it from being a time of prayer to a time of reading. Then it moved from soul searching into writing. And then it moved from hesitation into absolute excitement. And even to this day, I don't know if the primary point of this text and how it is that God broke it down in my life was because this is how he's wanted to challenge me. Or I don't know if ultimately, even tonight, if God gave me this message so that this group tonight would also be able to walk this same journey. I don't know how it's going to be. But what I can say is I'm excited about where it's going to be going. I've been praying on this, particularly this evening, and I've been asking God one thing. Would your will be done? I don't know what God's doing in your life tonight. I don't know what he desires to do in your life tonight. But what I can tell you is that since March of 2019, this particular text has been one that God has used to overwhelm me and my time with him in prayer, and move me in the next step of my journey with Christ. So I want to walk you through the text as God walked me through this text. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, or you can follow on the screen, turn with me to John chapter 7, verses 25 through 30. John 7, 25 through 30. I'm speaking this evening on the subject of deeper in boldness. Deeper in boldness. Let's read the text, begin in verse 25 and following. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask tonight, that your spirit would guide us into truth. We submit our hearts to you this evening, asking God that you would allow your word and your spirit to do a work so deep in our hearts that we walk away changed, not because we've been at church, but because we've met with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To get the big picture of what's occurring in this text, 
it's important that we understand that there's three distinct groups of people that are interacting with Jesus throughout this story. Here's what's taking place. First, there are the Jewish leaders who, in this text, they're called the Jews. And they are those who lived in Jerusalem, and they were attached to the temple ministry. That would be the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, all of those. There's also the people or the festival crowd that is mentioned in this text. And that is Jews who had come into town for this celebration. It was the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And then there's also a third group, and that is the Jews who actually lived in Jerusalem. Now, this particular group of people, we will call the Jerusalemites. It's important to keep the distinctions in our mind because you're going to see them interacting, and each group has a different part of the information as they're walking through this text. So, for example, in verses 19 through 24, the festival crowd, or group number two, had no idea that their leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Whenever Jesus brought it up in the preceding text, they actually said that he was insane or he was demon-possessed. They're like, there is no way our leaders are trying to kill you. But then you find in verses 25 through 30 that the Jerusalemites, group number three, they knew about the plot and they were puzzled because Jesus is now openly and boldly speaking in the temple and nobody's saying anything to him. In fact, they ask in verse number 25, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? And the Greek structure of that sentence, it implies an affirmative answer. They're like, yes, this is the guy. That's the one right there. They know that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus, and yet Jesus has publicly condemned their hypocrisy, stepped right up onto the temple stage, and they remain silenced. So now the Jerusalemites said in verse number 26, Look, he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Now, the gravity of this particular moment is actually captured back in chapter 7, verse 1, where it says that Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, that's group number one, were seeking to kill him. Now, we know that Jesus was not unwilling to die. In fact, that's the exact reason he came, based on John chapter 12, verse 27. The issue was it was not yet his time to die. So here's a thought that just hit me at about that point in my message prep. Jesus knowingly was living under a predetermined death sentence from the Father while living among a group of people who were trying to speed up the timeline. And knowing that, he still goes before that crowd calls out their hypocrisy, and they did nothing. Back in 2011, I was in a compound about three hours outside of Cairo whenever the Muslim Brotherhood took over the government of Egypt. And millions of protesters took the streets that night they clashed with security forces. There were 800 people killed, 6,000 injured. There was over 90 police stations that were burned to the ground. And I happened to be a part of a small group of pastors, about 8 to 10 of us. And we were training, teaching, and serving about 500 pastors from the underground church throughout the Middle East. Well, on that particular night, we were awakened to the sound of gunfire and shouting right outside the compound walls. Now, when you're in a country that is openly hostile to Christianity, you're already on edge. When you know that millions of people are protesting that night because a more corrupt group, 
took over the government, you're fully alert. When you're staying in a Christian compound that's already been burned to the ground twice by Muslim extremists, your prayer life goes up. And when you hear machine gun fire and shouts outside the walls in the middle of the night, your fight or flight instincts kick in. I can remember waking up and looking around my room to find any kind of weapon I could find. Now, this is just my thought. You might judge me on this. Here's my thought. I'm not going to go out like a punk. I'm going to go out swinging. If somebody's going to take me down, I'm going to go out swinging. Now, I recognize that might not be the most Christian thing to say, but when you're in that situation, I'll let you determine how it is you want to respond. So my frantic search turned up a two-inch pocket knife and a brass lamp. And now, don't laugh too much, because remember, Samson took out a 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. I, I figure with a brass lamp, we're already a step above. Now, long story short, uh, we had no problems that night. They, they were not focused on us at all. In fact, they were shooting machine guns, and they were shouting in celebration. But we didn't know that at the time. All we knew is that we're in a difficult spot, and it sounded like somebody is wanting to kill us. Now, here's the thought. That moment changed everything for the rest of the trip. We were alert before. We were hypervigilant after that. Everywhere we traveled, we were making sure no one was following us. There was a security detail in front of us, a security detail behind us. We had the, the blinds pulled in the van to make sure that nobody would see that it was us going from one place to the next. We were not causing anybody to look in our direction. And listen, and that's after knowing we were never the target. Jesus was the target, and he knew it. And instead of scrambling for a lamp and a pocket knife, he walks into the biggest city of Judaism, onto the biggest stage of Judaism, right into the center of the temple, and he calls out the hypocrisy of the very group that is trying to kill him. And listen, verse 26 says, Look, he's speaking publicly. Did you know that same word in King James is translated boldly? The word it means publicly, boldly, confidently. And the Jerusalemites, they're stunned. They're like, am I seeing this right? That guy is standing on the stage. He knows they're trying to kill him. And he's still speaking boldly. Now, why didn't the leaders arrest him? That was the question that this group of people had. In fact, look over in verse 26. It says, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They're now starting to get puzzled themselves. They're like, do they know something that we don't know? Is this truly the Christ? Well, the Jerusalemites continued in verse 27. It says, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Now, they thought that they knew why Jesus was not the Messiah. And basically, it comes back to misinformation, misinterpretation, and popular legend. When I say misinformation, they mistakenly thought that Jesus was from Nazareth as opposed to Bethlehem. So they were thinking to themselves, well, we know where this guy's from. That's a part of the popular legend here. It comes off of a poor interpretation of Isaiah 53 and Malachi chapter 3. 
And that popular legend was that Messiah would come from an unknown place, the Messiah would appear suddenly from nowhere, and he would redeem Israel. So they're looking and they're saying, well, we know where this guy's from, so we know he cannot be Messiah. Well, even though they were mistaken in a part of their understanding, Jesus doesn't even take the time to correct that. He stays on point. Instead, he confronted their unbelief. Look at verse 28 again. Then Jesus cried out in the temple. He yelled so loud, everyone would hear. And here's the next phrase. So you know me and know where I'm from, do you? It's actually in the form of a question. The construction here is, he's saying, are you trying to tell me you know who I am and where I'm from? He goes on to say, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. If the first statement caused an uproar, that statement would have blown the roof off the temple. This is a group that prided themselves in knowing God. They, they prided themselves in saying, we know God better than anybody else. In fact, we have to know God at this level. You don't even know all that we know. We have secret knowledge that you don't even know about God. And basically Jesus says, you don't know him. The leaders at this point are upset. So infuriated by his remarks, the Jerusalemites tried to seize him. And here's what it says in verse 30. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, it doesn't tell us what stopped him, but it does tell us why they stopped. His hour had not yet come. In other words, in God's divine decreative will, Jesus was untouchable until the Father said, now. It's in this scene, and specifically in verse 26, one word in verse 26, that has now disrupted my life for almost a year. In verse 26, when it says, look, he is speaking publicly. He is speaking boldly. That word boldly began to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into my heart. I started to look up the word bold or boldness throughout the New Testament just to see where is this connected, where is this coming from. And I quickly realized that boldness is a word that epitomized the first century church. Boldness was in their message. It was in their method of preaching. It was in their prayers. It was in their actions. For just a moment, I want to kind of walk you through just a few of those verses describing the first century church and the boldness in which they lived. In Acts 4.31, it says, when they had prayed. By the way, I think you all just finished 21 days of prayer. Okay, you're in a good place for this right now. When they had prayed, you all have been praying. It says, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 4.13 tells us the Sanhedrin was amazed at the bold confidence of Peter as well as John. Acts chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 tells us immediately after the Apostle Paul's conversion that the Apostle Paul spoke boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus as well as in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 18, it tells us Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. When the Apostle Paul arrived in Ephesus, it says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
Then the Apostle Paul, he asked the Ephesians to pray on my behalf to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in these chains that I may proclaim it with boldness as I ought to speak. Just get that thought in your mind. While in chains for the gospel, he said, would you pray for me that I would have greater boldness to proclaim the gospel? He said to the Philippians, It is my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ may even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's praying whether or not God leaves him or takes him home. Would he live with boldness? 1 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul reminded them, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Here's the thought that kept going through my head. They had bold hope, bold faith, bold prayers, bold preaching, bold lives. They were bold in the face of suffering. They, they were bold in the midst of facing death itself. And it wasn't boldness in their ability or boldness in their strategy. Rather, it was boldness in their God. Their lives were a walking billboard for the truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's boldness. Now, here's the question that God has used and haunted my quiet times for a year. What in my life resembles first century Christianity? What in my life resembles first century Christianity? Where's the boldness in my prayers? Where's the boldness in my walk with God? Am I willing to risk the comfort of what God has done for the uncertainty of what God may do? Am I willing to suffer for others so that they might know him? Am I willing to die if that is what God calls me to do? How much time do I spend pursuing comfort and how little time do I actually spend pursuing the heart of God in boldness? Am I willing to give boldly and serve boldly and trust God boldly? What in my life resembles first century Christianity? The more I ask the question, the more my prayers turn to repentance. And God revealed to me that somewhere along the way, I had lost a lot of my boldness. Whether or not it was not knowing how to pray in the moment, whether or not it was maybe being afraid that God was going to say no, or whether or not it was being afraid that he might say yes and I didn't want to pay the price, all I can say is I found myself going back into safe prayers and safe dreams and safe service. Comfort became more appealing to me than sacrifice. Here's a, it's a tough statement, but I got one for you. Safe prayers lead to spiritually domesticated saints. Let that one sit with you for a moment. Safe prayers lead to spiritually domesticated saints. We become tame in our pursuits. We become pacified in our prayers. That wide-eyed wonder, that adventurous passion for what God may do, it gets silenced somewhere along the way with the voice of, it'll cost you too much. 
But it was in this time God began to graciously, and when I say graciously, he was so gentle in how he did it. He began to walk me back through the moments along the way where I had greater boldness in my prayers. And it reminded me of living in North Carolina and asking God, would you allow me to plant a disciple-making church in Las Vegas? And he said, yes. He reminded me of three years of praying that God would burden the heart of a landowner or a builder in this city to donate millions of dollars of property to our church so we would have a place of permanency. And three years later, somebody calls me on a Friday and they say, I don't know who you are. I, you don't, I don't go to your church, but God burned my heart. I'm supposed to buy you guys a piece of land. He reminded me. He's like, it was three years you were praying on that. He reminded me that when I asked him, God, would you give us mission partnerships around the world that we would engage the nations with you? Now, 40 plus nations later, he's saying, I'm still answering those prayers. He reminded me of the time that I prayed that he would allow us to help plant churches across the U.S. 17 churches later, we're still moving forward with his yes. He reminded me of when we prayed that he would allow us to build life community centers so that we could make disciples and so that we could serve the community and love people well. And how he allowed that to become a reality. He said yes. All along the way, he just kept saying yes. And here's the question. Then he began to ask me, what are you asking me for today? If it took three years for God to answer one prayer request, what do I need three years from now that I'm not even asking him for today? I'm 47 years old. With an average lifespan of maybe 80 years. I'm already in the third quarter of my life at this point. And God may choose to take me home tonight, and I might be at the very end and don't even know it. But I want the remainder of my life to be defined by going deeper in boldness with God. I'm not talking about running off half-cocked, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, that type of stuff. I'm talking about sitting in the presence of God. I'm talking about seeking his heart in prayer surrendering every part of who I am to the Lordship of Christ and begging God, would you use my life for your sake and for your glory? And all I know how to do on this is to share with others what I'm praying for because that's like personal accountability. When I start backing up, somebody might come to me and say, Paul, how's the boldness going in your prayer? So here's just a few of the prayers I'm praying. I'm praying, God, use me to pray boldly. May my prayer life be a reflection of the power of my God and a recognition that without him I can do nothing. That's where my prayers need to be. God, use me to give boldly. Will you challenge my selfishness at every turn so that year after year I give more and I give sacrificially? God, would you use me to live boldly instead of worrying about every detail and every facet of tomorrow? May I walk humbly in the grace that God's given me for today. God, would you use me to serve boldly? I'm praying, God, send us to the areas of the world nobody else wants to go. We just got an invitation to go into literally set from the ground up the structure for training pastors, planting churches, and making disciples in one of the most difficult countries in the world, in Mozambique. In fact, to tell you how difficult it is, we've sent two trips out there, and on each time, each of our people got robbed. That's the setting that we're walking into. 
And God has given us an open door for us to go in and to create a network and to plant churches. We just got back from a trip in Ethiopia. Literally, this is, this is how God works things together. We were praying that God would continue to give us opportunities in the northern part of Africa so that we could begin to see God's activity through the 1040 window. And we were praying, God, we need to go. We need to go. And here's what happened. A man in our church from Ethiopia translated our This is the Gospel discipleship material into the native language of Ethiopians. That was done like three years ago. And we were excited about that. And then we had a man show up in our service on one Sunday it was a friend of a friend. He walks in. He leads the largest Protestant denomination in the country of Ethiopia. They have been planting churches. They have been training pastors. In fact, right now, they're going into some of the Muslim-dominated areas, sharing the gospel. The imams are coming to Christ, and they're finding that they're taking what used to be the place of worship, turning it into a church. That's the group that we're going in. Five years ago, there were five people who went up onto a mountaintop to pray. Our guys just got back yesterday. 100,000 people joined them on the mountaintop for prayer. And guess what? This guy walks into our church and he says, we need help in discipleship. And a guy who's on our staff turned, he pulled out his cell phone and he said, what language do you all speak? It was Amharic. He said, would this help? And the man and his wife broke down weeping for the next five minutes. They said, for over 10 years, we've been praying that God would create discipleship material in our native language. Right now, we got the invitation to come and to train their pastors throughout Ethiopia so that they know how to make disciples and plant churches. Here's what I'm saying. As we keep praying deeper, God keeps saying, ask me for the nations. Ask me for the nations. Instead, I'm just saying, like, God, can we at least keep the lights on next week? And he's saying, no, bold, bold, ask me, ask me. I'm asking God that he would use me to love boldly. Help me to love like Jesus loved and treat people like he did. I've asked God to help me lead boldly. Guys, listen, it starts at home. It starts at home. I've asked God, help me to be the best Christian version of myself in the home. Because if I can't be a good Christian in my home, I can't be a good Christian anywhere. But if I can be a good Christian in my home, I can be a great Christian everywhere. I'm asking God, use me to worship boldly. I've been praying that God would allow our church to be able to train and invest in the next generation of worship leaders and worship pastors and songwriters. I've been praying, God, help me to preach boldly. May my preaching be in demonstration of the Spirit and His power. I, I keep praying. So here's my question. How about you? If boldness defined Jesus and boldness defined the first century church, where has timidity, fear, or apathy diverted you? Where is God whispering into your spirit, I made you for more than this? I want you to take the principles of this message, and here's just some questions. And I know there's some videos going, so maybe you could ask your friend if I go through them too fast. But here's just some questions to ask God. 
Where have I become spiritually domesticated? Where in my life has the allure of comfort replaced the excitement of following you into the unknown? What gifts and talents and abilities has God given me that are sitting dormant because the voice of fear has drowned out the voice of God? Where is God challenging me to give more, to serve others, to share more? Where am I dilated in from home in my Christian life? Are my prayers defined by boldness? What excuses am I giving for not spending time with God, for not taking that mission trip, and for not being salt and light in my neighborhood? What lies is the enemy using to lock me away in fear when I should be engaging the world in the boldness and the power of God? And at what point do I stop going through the motions and I choose to walk boldly with my God? Mary Oliver, an American poet, said, Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. What is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's been said we only live once. But listen, when you live right, once is all you need. So what's he calling you into right now? Where is he speaking into your spirit and saying, I want to take you deeper? As you move into 2020, ask God, is there anything in my life right now that's holding me back from living boldly in the will of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that your word would resonate in our hearts. God, I recognize that for most of the people in this room, they, they don't know me. God, I've never met them. But Lord, we serve you. We have the same spirit, the same word, the same Savior. So God, I pray that you would move in our hearts in a way in which you challenge those areas in us where you're saying, I created you for more than this. God, may we walk in boldness, live in boldness, pray in boldness, give in boldness, serve in boldness. And Lord, may you do a work in and through our lives that's stronger than anything that we could ever imagine. And God, we will praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name.